Well, let me invite you to turn into the Gospel of Luke. This will be the last time I'll be saying that for a while. Uh, Amen. Who said that? (laughs) Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. You'll find that on page 885. As we now uh, consider our 106th sermon in the study of this magnificent work of our Lord. Luke 24, beginning in verse 44. Hear now the word of God. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany. Lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Our Father, we're thankful for your word, which we may consider now, and even as we read in this passage, and considered at length last time we were in Luke's gospel, that you do the work of opening eyes to see your truth. We pray that you would do so in your abundant kindness to us even now. Open our eyes, that we may see the majesty of our Lord Jesus, that we might be transformed and that we might fall more in love with him as we seek to live for him. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. It was in 1631 that a man named John Eliot crossed the Atlantic Ocean at age 27. A year later, he was appointed as a pastor in a new church in Roxbury, Massachusetts, near Boston. A passage that had a great impact on Pastor Eliot's life was Psalm 67, the great missionary psalm that says, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. That passage uh, just stayed with Eliot. He couldn't escape it, especially in the fact that around him lived 20 nations, 20 tribes of Indians lived around him, and he kept hearing, all nations will come to know me, all nations will praise me, and his conclusion was eventually that perhaps he was the chosen instrument of God to bring light to those who are blind. 
And so therefore, at 40 years old, Eliot began to study Algonquin. He began to consider its grammar and its syntax and its vocabulary. He eventually would go on to translate the Bible into this Indian language. And 44 years later than that, at age 44, there were churches throughout the Algonquin people, most with their own Native American pastor. While all this was happening, 12 English Puritans wrote to Parliament about the spread of the gospel among the Indians in New England. They said, the utmost ends of the earth are designed and promised to be in time the possession of Christ. The ends of the earth shall see his glory, and the kingdoms of the world shall become the kingdoms of the Lord and of his Christ. If some beginning be so full of joy, they're talking about this this conversion among the Indians, if some beginning be so full of joy, what will it be when God shall perform his whole work? When the whole earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea and east and west sing together the song of the Lamb? What will that be like? Can you imagine What will it be like when East and West all join their voices in singing praises to our Lamb who was slain and risen? It seems to me this was the Lord's ambition that this happened. According to verse 47 of our text, he says that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. We, of course, now come to the end of Luke's gospel I have been reminding you, haven't I, that this is the longest book in the New Testament. And so we have spent on and off, believe it or not, over three years in what Luke called his orderly account. And Luke is what he's doing. He's he's focusing on what hundreds of millions of people this very day throughout this world are focusing on. The life and the work and the teaching of Christ. In fact, just for fun, go back to, to Luke chapter 1. We're not starting over. Don't freak out. Um, Luke 1, look how he begins this gospel. It's been a while since we considered this passage. In Luke 1, 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. So what he's saying is that there are many people who have written about Jesus. Just as those who from beginning where eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. Verse 3, this is the justification for his gospel. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And so Luke tells us, he says, I'm going to do this careful research, and I'm considering the other accounts that people have written down, and I'm, and I'm doing interviews, and I'm, I'm talking to eyewitnesses, and I'm, I'm compiling, and I'm investigating, and I've been doing it for some time in order to present to you this orderly account of the life and the, the ministry and, of course, the, the atoning work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we, we now come to the end of this orderly account, and it's, it's almost like a reversal from how it began because Luke's gospel begins with what we call the incarnation, where Jesus comes from heaven down to earth, becoming a man. And now we end his gospel with Jesus on earth returning to heaven where he rules as king and intercedes for us as high priest. And, and as Jesus departs, as we'll see today, he gives his disciples a gospel to share and 
power to receive and blessings to cherish and a savior to worship. But before any of this, he gives them a peace to enjoy. And so consider, first of all, the, these final instructions of our Lord. He offers them a peace. Look back up in verse 36. I, I know we looked at this passage last time we were in Luke's gospel. But there's this little phrase that we, we didn't take any note of. And, and I hate to leave those things lying there without talking about them. So uh, verse 36, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. Now remember last time we talked how the doors were closed and the blinds were pulled and the lights were dim and they're, and, and they're hiding there and Jesus just kind of appeared there somehow and, and he shows us in some way what, what our bodies will be like, the abilities of our bodies. And we talked about that last time. But we, we didn't talk about this phrase, peace to you. He shows up and he says, peace to you. Now some have said, well, that's just a typical Middle Eastern greeting. That's how they, that's how they say hello. And in some sense, that's true. Um, but don't you think there's something more here? That here the risen Christ, he just conquered the tomb, rose from the grave, and, and I don't think he shows up and is simply saying, hello, hi guys, how are you? I, I think there's far more that the risen Lord comes and he says, peace comes from the other side of the grave, and he says, peace to you. The one who we saw in Luke chapter 8 who stood on the bow of the ship, and, and, he, and he said to the, to the raging storm and the, the tumultuous waves, peace be still, and it was calm. Now says to these troubled and confused apostles and disciples, peace to you. And I trust what a, what a calming influence that will be upon their heart, because you do, I think, remember how they have treated him in days past. They have not treated him very well, have they? Every single one of them has treated him poorly. And part of us perhaps imagines him, maybe they imagine him showing up and, and the first words that he might have for them is, you good-for-nothing cowards, right? Man, I, I, have, I have spent three years with you. I've been pouring my light. I've been with you night and day for three years, and you are no different today than the day we started I should have never chosen you. That's not what he says, is it? He comes to these cowards, these deniers, and he says, you know what I'm bringing from the grave with me? I'm bringing peace. I come to bring peace. Just, just as he comes to you, my Christian brothers and sisters, when you fail him, when you break your promises to him, when you turn your back upon him, he doesn't wait until you come crawling back to him. He doesn't wait to you to just beg for another chance. He comes to you, sinner, with arms open wide. He comes to you announcing peace. In fact, when he was born, did not the angels declare he has come to bring peace on earth? And now he offers it to them, peace between sinful men and a holy God. Just as the Apostle Paul testified in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He can offer us this peace where there once was hostility because he has paid for sin. All that hostility between us and God was absorbed on the cross by the Lord Jesus Christ. He took it upon himself. And so the way to have peace, according to the Lord, is that we trust him through faith. That we acknowledge who he is and we yield our life over to him. I want you to understand this morning as we begin this passage that Jesus offers you peace. Peace with God. Why would anyone not receive that? He says, simply, you place your faith in me, you yield your life to me, you trust me, 
and, and you may have it. If you are here today and you do not have peace with God, like these four have testified, they have received peace with God. I pray that you would receive that today. You would not leave this room neglecting the peace in which the Lord offers them. He comes and says, I, I offer you peace. And, and he gives that to them. And, and then, then he's going to send them and empower them and give them instructions. Before he does any of that, he says, I want you to know, first of all, there's peace between us. But then secondly, you see, he gives them a gospel to share. This seems to be the, the main thrust of much of this passage. So pick up with me where we left off last time in verse 46. And he said to them, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So Jesus tells us here in these two verses that, that there, there are three realities that the Old Testament proclaimed. Right? He says, thus it is written. Well, where is it written? It's, it's written in the Old Testament. And so what are the three? One, that Christ should die and Two, that Christ should be raised. We consider those at length, the last two sermons in Luke's gospel. But there's this third reality that the Old Testament predicted. It's there in verse 47. That repentance and forgiveness of sins through the work of Jesus should be proclaimed to all nations. That we are to go out and we are to call for people to repent. In fact, since sin entered the world, the Lord has been calling for people to repent. To turn away from their sin. To turn away from their self-rule. To come back to him. The prophet Isaiah said, let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. Let him repent. So my question for you, brothers and sisters in Christ, is not did you repent one day, but, but are you repenting? Do you live a life of repentance? Martin Luther said the, the whole of Christian life is one of repentance. Are you a repenting person? Do you talk to God about your sin? Do you confess specifically your sin to God, seeking his forgiveness for those transgressions and, and those iniquities? I think sometimes we are far more likely to talk about other people's sin than our own sin. We, 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 don't, we don't complain about our sin, we complain about others. right? And so my question for you is, do you say to people and do you say to the Lord, I'm sorry? I shouldn't have done that. That was sin. That was wrong. That was evil. Please forgive me. I was so blessed by the testimonies that were given. I trust you were as well. There was a theme there, wasn't there? And the theme does <laughs> a great joy in my own heart as a, as a Christian father, that each one of these testified that, of the role of their, their parents, their moms and their dads in their life to bring them to faith in Christ. And so let me just talk to parents for a moment in this idea of repentance. The best way to raise hypocrites is for your kids to always hear you complaining about other people's sins and never complaining about your own. Right? The, the best way for them to, to, to think, okay, I live one way this way and I live another way this way, to be a hypocrite, is for them never to hear you repent and never hear you say, son or, or daughter, what I just said was a sin, how I treated you was a sin, I'm sorry, will you please forgive me? Right? If we want parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, you want to be spiritual leaders, you want to lead, lead your children, your grandchildren to Christ, show them what repentance looks like 
in your life. Let them see it in you that they might learn how to do it from you, that you would turn from sin. They can see it, and this would lead them to Christ. You see, we need to turn from sin, Jesus says. Sin comes out to kill these relationships, and it, sin seeks to kill marriages and kill families. How many families do you know where, where the mom and dad raised a kid and poured their life into the kid, and now because of some sin, mom doesn't talk to son or dad doesn't talk to daughter, and there's rec- uh, unreconciliation because sin comes to kill. When God says repent, he's not being a kill joy. Sin is the kill joy. He wants you to have life. He wants you to have relationships. He wants you to know what life is about. Sin leads to death. Eventually, if you do not repent of it, it will lead to eternal death. It will lead to an eternal separation with God because it is only the repentant who are forgiven. Is that not what the Lord is teaching us here in verse 47? Is he not linking these two realities and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to his nation, to to all nations? That, That repentance... This, this faith, repentance in the Lord is how we access God's forgiveness. So Isaiah, who told the sinful, let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. That's the forgiveness, right? And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. So the forgiveness of sin comes to the repentant. The, the, those who turn from their sin and come to the Lord. You see, both are necessary. We, we need both repentance and forgiveness. Re- forgiveness is what the victim does. Repentance is what the guilty does. Right? So we, if you sin, you repent, and then the sinned against person offers forgiveness. And you need both for reconciliation. You need both for peace. God is willing to forgive if you are willing to repent, if you will turn from your sin. And it's this message that Jesus says should be Proclaimed. You see that in verse 47? And should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So these men are to be witnesses to this glorious news that this holy God will now forgive. And, and did they do it? Man, they were faithful. They witnessed to these truths. In fact, Jesus says that you are witnesses of these things. And they went out and they were witnesses of, of these truths. They shared this truth with someone. That person received it. That person shared it with someone else. That person received it. Eventually, that came to you. That's how you're saved. It's because these men were faithful. That's how these four individuals were saved because these men shared with other people who shared with other people who shared. And 2,000 years later in Hamilton, Virginia, on April 29, 2018, there are four more who say, I belong to Christ because he has forgiven me. They shared the truth. They witnessed. Please understand, if if you're here today and you're not a Christian, we're so delighted that you are here. And I think you, you can learn a great deal about what we believe from this passage. See, Christianity, see, I think the world thinks Christianity is like an ethical system. Now, there are ethics in Christianity, but it is not an ethical system. Christianity is fundamentally a belief in what God has done through historical activity in the world in order to save sinners. And we are told to tell other people about those acts. And so if you ever wonder... Why are Christians so pushy? Right? Why are you always talking about Jesus? Why, why, do you get, why, why are you trying to get Muslims to convert from Islam to Christianity or, or, or agnostics to convert? Why, you, why, why can't you just let people be, be what they want to be? Why do, you have, why do you have to argue with them? Why do you have to persuade them? Well, you know, we, we do this out of, you know, 
contrary to what the world says, we do this out of love. Right? It's much easier to be quiet. We do it because we, we love people, and, and we think it's unloving to let people worship a false god, totally unprepared, therefore, to stand before the real god one day. But we, more fundamentally in this passage, we do it because we're told to. It's the Lord's command. He said, you will tell others this. In other words, we can't follow Jesus and keep him to ourselves. You can't, those two cannot go together. You can't, can't not talk about Jesus and still follow Jesus. In other words, it's impossible to be faithful to him and not talk about him because he tells us to talk about him. So if I'm faithful to him, I have to obey him. And part of obeying him is telling other people about him. In fact, we are to tell, according to the Lord, the nations. Start in Jerusalem, he says there in verse 47. It's where Jesus did his work of salvation. Go to the nations, go to all the tribes and languages and people and nations throughout the world. And he says, did you pick this up in verse 47? He says, this is, this is how it's been written. This was God's plan. This is, not, this is not a new plan. This is the plan from the very beginning, right? Numbers 14, verse 21. All the earth should be full of the glory of God. God brings Israel into the promised land, Joshua 4, so that all the people of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. Psalm 22, the same psalm that prophesied Christ's crucifixion, also promised all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. That's God's mission. That's his design for history. God's plan, and this will happen, is that all the nations, people from all the nations and all the tongues and all the tribes will come to worship him through Jesus Christ. It has to go to all nations, Jesus says. And my fear is, especially in the Western church, and I think this is why the church is so weak, is that we have a, a truncated gospel. We have, a, we have an incomplete Christianity. And it goes like this. God loved me so much, he sent Jesus to die for me that I might be saved, period. That's it. That's the gospel. Please understand, if, if that's what you think Christianity is, that's incomplete. Now, that's true, but it's incomplete. Because if all Christianity is that Jesus came in the world, died for me so that I might receive forgiveness, then Christianity becomes about you, isn't it? And, and life becomes about you. And everything revolves around you. And, and, and Christianity is all about your health and your job and, and your family and your dreams. And God just exists to be kind of a, you know, encourage me and be uplifting and, and give me, my, you know, my best life now. And, 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 and he's just there to kind of follow me around and help me because it's all, all, all about me. And Jesus says, no, I, you need to understand something. I died. I rose again. I saved you. Now you continue my mission. You have been saved by God to continue the mission of Christ. So biblical Christianity is not God died for me, God blesses me, God loves me, God, God, God's gonna save me forever. That, no, biblical Christianity is God died for me, God blesses me, God loves me, so that I could join Jesus on his mission to create a people who love him and worship him and want to follow him, to bring the kingdom of God here. Thy kingdom come. How's the kingdom gonna come? Through you and me. We are to be on God's mission. Therefore, do not disconnect the blessings of God from the mission of God. 
right? You're, you're, you're blessed by God in order to continue the mission of God. The reason why he pours out blessings upon you is not simply to fluff your pillow and, 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 and you know, make you comfortable and give you the 55-inch TV. That's not why he's blessing you. He is blessing you so that you might continue the work in which he has started to bring the kingdom of God here upon this earth. God never blesses you without making you a blessing to others. His blessings are not to terminate in your life. They are to be a, a conduit as you flow into others, as you share your faith and you live like Christ. And we see this throughout the Bible. Even Dave read for us in Abraham. Abraham encounters God. God says, I want to be in a covenant with you. I want to be your God. Abraham says, great, that sounds great. And then God says, okay, time to go. And Abraham says, where are we going? And God says, I'll show you when we get there, okay? It's time to go. It's work to be done, Okay? Moses, burning bush, he says, I'm the God of your fathers. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm your God. Moses says, great. God says, okay. Now go to the most powerful man in the world and tell him he needs to give up his free labor force or else. Isaiah encounters God. Overcome by sin, God powerfully cauterizes the sin out of him. And God says, okay, who's going to go for me? And Isaiah says, I'll go. I want to go. Will you send me? Saul persecuting the church after the church. God comes, takes a hold of his life, and Saul says, through Jesus, I have received grace. It's a period. I received grace, period, end of story. I have received grace to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations. Peter's on the boat, miraculous catch. Peter says, Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinner. And Jesus says, I'm not going anywhere, Peter. Instead, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make you a fisher of men. You see the pattern, my brothers and sisters? When you become a Christian, you join God on his mission. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's not what you do in your spare time. It is who you are, right? You were not to be silent and withdrawn. We're to penetrate the world. We're to seek the lost. We're to care for those in need. We're to act like Christ. We're to talk about Christ. We're to tell them what Jesus means to you. Right? And, and if all we do is dwell on this personal relationship with Jesus, it is a personal relationship. I'm not denying that. But if all it is is just me and Jesus, we're missing the picture. We're like a bat boy at the World Series, and we think the whole point is for me to hand the, bat, the, the hitter his bat. That's not the point. You're not the point. God's kingdom's the point. And he, he says, I want you to be on that mission. You see, Jesus is our life. You belong to him. You, you put your life in his, your hands, his hands. You've been bought with a price, haven't you, my brothers and sisters? You're like Paul. says, I count my life nothing. I'm not living for my dreams and ambitions and hopes anymore. I want Christ, and I want to live for him. Even as shared with us, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. Yet the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I'm living for Jesus. I want you to enlarge your heart and expand your mind beyond your own limited life and realize that you get to play a role in the great uh, ambition of God to bring the nations to himself and establish his kingdom forever and ever. And that won't fail. And you get to be part of that. Are you playing a role? Are you part? Are you witnessing? You, of course, are witnessing. All of us witness. Maybe not about Jesus, but we all witness about things that are important to us. Just this week, I was um, with Pastor Josh and Dave, and we were visiting Dick Trapp. 
And I, I, was, I was witnessing about my, uh, my oldest son who's pouring himself into the guitar so he could help God's people sing their praises to God. That's really, I mean, that's, uh, that really impacts my heart that my son says, I want to help the people of God worship. So I was, tell, I was telling Dick, because I'm excited about that. You talk about what you're excited about, don't you? Right? You've talked to people this week, and you have talked to them about what's going on in your life, what you're excited about. My question is, when is the last time you've been excited about Jesus like that? When have you said, hey, can I, hey do you know what I, what, I, what I saw this morning? Can I tell you what God's doing in my life? Can I tell you how Christ has impacted me? You see, we're called to be his witnesses as individuals and as a church. I I pray that our church would be even more engaged in the missionary opportunities in front of us. Maybe your community group, in light of these truths, can say, let's let's partner with one of our missionaries that the church supports, and let's let's support them and and love them and give to them. Let's get involved. Or, or, Or maybe you want to go to Ghana this August or Eagle Butte this August. We're praying about what how that God would lead us in Guatemala, and there might be construction opportunities and pastoral training opportunities. We're praying about church planting. The elders are considering how we can plant churches, just not in Ghana like we have as Hope Community Bible Church, but how, how we can plant a church maybe in a couple of years in Lovettsville or, or Berryville or Upperville. All, all the villes need churches, okay? Right? Right? Well, maybe God could use Little Hamilton Baptist Church to spread his kingdom. Wouldn't it be amazing if, if our children, we just had this kind of culture in our church, if our children, we thought, um, maybe after high school or after college, and that we as a church supported and sent and funded and helped, that they just go and live on the mission field for a year or two. So I just want to give a couple years of my life just full bore into the gospel. I just want to tell people about Jesus. I don't, you know, there's 2.8 billion people that don't even know the name of Jesus. 2.8 billion. My friends, we have a mission to do. We need to be about the mission. We need it about telling our neighbors, telling nations, living like Christ. We can't afford to be silent. I give you a, Christ is ascending to heaven and says, I give you a gospel to share. You're looking at your watch. I understand. I'm about to pick up speed, okay? Here we go. Number three, a power to receive. So we have a mission, but here's the thing. We don't do it alone. This is so cool. Verse 49. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. And so God, God uh, um, he calls, this is talking about the Holy Spirit here. But notice, I think this is cool. He says, I'm sending the promise of my Father. What does that mean? It means that the Holy Spirit has been promised, once again from the Old Testament. This is not a new plan. And so in, in, in um, Numbers, I think it was, in Numbers 14, that uh, he says that um, the Spirit is going to come upon you. And Moses, when the Spirit came upon the 70 elders, he said, I wish God would pour out a Spirit upon all of God's people. Right? Or Isaiah said the Spirit would come, and, and Joel said the Spirit's going to come. Ezekiel said he's going to put a Spirit in our hearts. The, the gift of the Holy Spirit is the promise of God. And then he goes on to describe it and says the, it's power from on high. And so they're going to be empowered by the, by the Spirit to share the gospel, to witness. This is why the Holy Spirit's in us. And, and by the way, this is what happened. You read the book of Acts, and Acts is pretty much how the church built the kingdom through the power of the Holy Spirit. So you get Acts 2.4. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts 
Acts 4.8, and Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, spoke to the rulers of the people. Acts 4.31, when they prayed, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And on and on we could go. They were continually filled with the Holy Spirit. And as they proclaim, and as they witness, and as they live for Christ, the Holy Spirit takes what they're doing, and he impacts people's lives around them. Right? The, the Holy Spirit helps with this work. Right? Because he did, by the way, say, did you see where, they're spo- where are they supposed to go? To all nations. And it makes you think, well, did they get out a map or something and think, okay, there's like a hundred of us? I mean, this is going to be a big job. We're going to need some help here. God says, don't worry. I'm sending help. Wait for the Spirit. He's going to come upon you. He's going to gift you. He's going to strengthen you. He's going to convict you. He's going to empower you. He's going to work through your words when you share the gospel. So Paul could say you, to the Thessalonian church, you not only received the gospel as words, but you received it through power and the Holy Spirit. It's through our feeble efforts that the Holy Spirit is going to continue the ministry of Jesus to bring forgiveness of sins to our neighbors and the nations. And so we, we, we are to go out in the, in the power of the Spirit. So what does that mean, Christians? Please understand, you already have the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, you have him. He lives in your life. And yet, at the same time, the Bible says it's good to seek him, to, to more fully submit your life to him. Jesus in, in Luke 11 says, hey, you fathers know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give, what is it, the Holy Spirit? To those who ask. So we're to seek the Holy Spirit. Yes, God, I, I want to submit more of my life. I want his power in my life. We're, to, we're certainly to pray about that. But here's the thing. You don't wait until you feel powerful to witness. Right? You're no, you don't wait until you, you put on the cape and you feel like, okay, now I can do it. I have power. No, you just open your mouth and the Holy Spirit uses your words in the lives of other people. The Spirit is in all of us. And so go this week and say, listen, the Spirit's in me. I have my marching orders. I'm going to talk to someone about Christ and leave it to the Spirit of God to do his work. And so he says, I'm going to give you this Spirit, this power. And as if that's not enough, he says, oh, by the way, i got some blessings for you. Number four, blessings to cherish. Um, We come to the end of of the 40 days that the risen Lord lived upon this earth. Luke's gospel, chapter 24, is very condensed. It almost looks as if it all happens on one day. But if you read Luke's sequel, the book of Acts, he tells us, no, he was here for 40 days. So the gap might be between verse 49 and verse 50. And Jesus takes them to his favorite spot, uh, Bethany, Mount of Olives. And there he blesses them. You see that in verse 50? Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And so we, we've seen him as a redeemer. Uh, we've, we've seen him as a prophet, right? We saw that in the past couple weeks, him teaching. Now he acts as a priest. He, he lifts up his hands, and he utters a blessing on them. Just as the priests would do after they would present the sacrifice, the, the priest, in order to reassure God's people that God received the sacrifice, that he has provided atonement, they would lift their hands and bless the people of God. And so here's Christ following his work of atonement to reassure the people of God of his blessings. He lifts his hands and he blesses them. And of course, even looking, he probably doesn't even say anything, does he? Because the hands itself are a blessing to his people. They see the scars upon his hands as he lifts them up and they know they are assured that they've been accepted by God because of the wounds in which he bears. He's paid for their sin. And so Charles Wesley, in light of this passage, would write, See, he lifts his hands above. See, he shows his prince of love. Hark, his gracious lips bestow 
blessings on his church below. And he says below because he does this while he ascends up into heaven, as you see in verse 51. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And I, I just can't, can you imagine what that would be like? And there's Jesus flying away. He's just floating up, right? And as he does, he's, he's speaking this blessing upon them, right? And, um, and I just love that picture. The Lord, I'm leaving now. We're parting, but I want to give you a blessing. In fact, um, well, as soon as I'm done, in about eh, seven minutes, okay, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to offer a blessing over this church in light of this passage. And I don't do it as a priest. Uh, that's always been my hesitation. There, there, there is no special priestly class anymore amongst God's people. Christ is our high priest, and then the Bible says we're all priests. Um, and so I think some Christian traditions confuse that and separate the people of God into different, two different camps. And I don't want to do that. But, uh, but I, I do want to speak a blessing over you just as a, a follower of Christ and uh, for other followers of Christ uh, as a reminder of God's favor upon us. Even as we depart, we leave knowing that God loves us and, and blesses us and wants to pour out his goodness upon us. So Christ offers this blessing as we see as he ascends to heaven. Um, this, you think, um, would have been very powerful in their lives. That is, he rises up to his throne. The Bible says he's there at the right hand of God, reigning as the eternal king. He has gone into heaven, the Bible says, and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and having powers subject to him. So Christ there, reigning in heaven right now as the eternal king. And you know what's interesting about that? is he takes his humanity with him. In other words, there is a human being exalted to the right hand of God, the Lord Jesus. Now, he's more than a human being, clearly, but he is not less. As one writer put it, comprehend this staggering fact. Because of the bodily ascension of Jesus Christ, the dust of earth now sits on the throne of heaven. And there he begins his heavenly ministry. His earthly ministry is finished, but it doesn't mean he's inactive. He begins uh, really a twofold ministry, a heavenly reign and a priestly intercession. And, and as he goes, this truth it just conjures this joy and wonder in the apostle's heart. I pray it would do so in your heart as we consider, lastly, a savior to worship. Jesus is sent into heaven and, and you would think as we know, you know, we spent three years with these guys now, haven't we? And and these are very needy men. Um, and we think if, as, if Jesus leaves them, they will be full of grief and confusion, sadness. But it's quite the opposite, isn't it? As you look there in, in verse, uh, what is it, verse 52. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with, with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. And so the, the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ seems to give them this incredible insight as to who he fully is. That this man whom they loved, they now, for the first time, worship him. They, they begin to praise him. These first century monotheistic Jews worshiping with great joy a man that they have spent three years, night and day with. They're praising him, offering him worship, just as we should. 
Right? Every Christian who knows this Jesus should also have this great joy, should also have this same delight in worshiping him. They're, they're filled with great joy. They're, they praise the Lord. They, my friends, there's nothing more inappropriate than a cranky Christian, right? Nothing more wrong than a smug Christian. Nothing stranger than a bored Christian. Oh, yeah, I know all this. Tell me something I don't know. Man, God's majesty is like the ocean, and I don't care how long you've been following him. You're like ankle deep. Right? There, there is vastness of glory and majesty, and, and, and we ought to be diving in and seeking after him and, and fi- following him. We ought to be filled with joy as to who he is and excitement that we get to be on this mission. And, and, and he goes, and they're filled with great joy, and they're worshiping God. And you see they end up doing what there in verse 53? They're blessing God. So he just blessed them, verse 51. And now, verse 53, they're blessing him. In return, they bless him. This is what we see throughout Scripture, this divine call and the human response. So they bless him for blessing them. They, we, we worship him for what he's done. He calls, we answer. He sends, we go. And so what we see is, is they're responding to him as, as God calls them to. They just want to praise him and they just want to bless him. And you notice where they're doing it there at the end there in the temple. Now, as I mentioned, it's been a long time since we started this book, but do you remember how it started? Where did, where did it start? It's almost like Luke is a movie director, and, right? And we, we begin with this solitary priest, this elderly man, there alone putting incense upon the altar inside the temple among the flickering candlelight. And there he meets this angel who says, the Messiah is coming. And now we end, and we're back at the temple. Three decades later, we find these disciples worshiping and blessing the Messiah who has come, saved by him, and now setting their life to accomplish his mission. That's my prayer for the Gospel of Luke. That would do that in our lives. Thank, thank you for letting me uh, preach this to you for, as I mentioned, about three and a half years. I have read time and again that if you want to grow a church, never have a sermon series longer than 13 weeks. Right? <laughs> well, you, you could probably tell what I, can, what I think about those kind of advice. Um, it, is, it has been a great joy to me. It has radically impacted my life, and, and, and my hope is that it would impact yours. I, I hope that these 106 Sundays would be worthwhile if they would transform us into people with great joy who worship God and want to be about the mission of God. In fact, I think it'd be worthwhile, wouldn't it, it'd be all 106 weeks if just one person, perhaps even today, when in light of this man, would say, I want them. I turn from my sin. I put my faith in Jesus Christ who died and rose from me. Our Father, we're thankful for this gospel. We're thankful for the work that you have done in our lives. I trust your word has not returned void. We're thankful for your kindness to us. It is a great treasure. Our Lord is a great treasure. May we live lives of obedience and joy to him. Do this even now as we depart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you please